Turn to 1 John chapter 4, please. 1 John chapter 4. Hear the word of God as it comes to us in 1 John 4, 7 through 16. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Let's pray. Lord God, once more we stand out way, way beyond our depths. We cannot comprehend thy holiness, but we also cannot comprehend thy love. Why thou wouldst love the unlovable is beyond our wildest imagination. But thy love is the fountainhead of all love, and we are humbled, we are grateful that thou art essentially love in thyself. Help us to stammer a little bit about this as well and fill us with a love of God that passes all understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the Bible's most wonderful phrases is the love of God. The love of God. One of my favorite texts to preach on is the last two verses of Romans 8. You know how Paul brings you four couplets of things that may make you fear in this life. And basically he says this, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. From the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul is speaking here about God's love coming to us, the love of the Father, through Jesus Christ. But the Bible also speaks about the God of love, not just the love of God. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 says, Finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect, be of good mind, be of 
be of comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love in peace shall be with you. Love of God, God of love, three simple words, one syllable each. They're not an empty formula. They're not a mere cliche, but they are deep, deep and profound. But this morning, I want to bring you to three other words, simple, every bit as profound, perhaps even more profound. 1 John 4, verse 8, and again, verse 16, these words, God is love. God is love. And I want to just do three things in this address. I'm not going to look at all the context, even though I'd love to, and I'm not going to look at the whole passage that I read. Just these three words. God is love. Three things. First, three things that that this text does not mean. That God is love does not mean. Second, three things it does mean. And finally, three points of application, how it should impact our lives. God is love. What it does not mean, what it does mean, and how it should transform us. So the first thing that God is love does not mean is that love is God. The phrases love is God and God is love are not reversible or convertible statements. There are ways of saying something that is the same back and forth in logic as well as in grammar. For example... You can say a sphere is a round object, or a round object is a sphere. Unfortunately, some people use very flawed logic, and they say something like this. Well, if God is love, then love is God. But you see, that logic is flawed. That'd be like saying an orange is round and a baseball is round, therefore a baseball is an orange. It doesn't work. God is love, but not everything that goes by the name of love is God. And this is a popular error in our culture today. The popular error of saying that love is God deifies the feelings of the idea of love. And it depersonalizes God. You find this in humanism, in many of the romantic ideas of God which approve of nearly anything that goes by the name of love. But the Bible teaches us there are spurious and deceitful kinds of love. There's the love of the world. There's the love of the flesh. There's the love of pleasure. There's the love of money. These are not love, but they are concupiscence and covetousness and inordinate desires to possess whatever we see and use it as we want. The end of false love is usually death and destruction. 
but even sinful movements like homosexuality today frequently use this false reasoning about love as if all forms of love are God. How often homosexuals claim to be Christians but say, it's okay for me to be in this relationship because I'm in love and love is God and therefore this must be of God. The problem here is that when we formulate our ideas of love from the world rather than from the word, we will always end with a faulty or shallow view of God. The word of God teaches us the true idea of love. And that goes far beyond some warm feelings oozing with human sentimentality. The love of God is different. The love of God is real because it's rooted in God. This love that God is affects the feelings, to be sure, but is much more than the feeling. It affects the whole man, the heart, the mind, the soul, because God is love in his whole being. And he makes us respond to that love with love with our whole being. So to say that, that love is God is the first mistake. <clears throat> the second error <clears throat> is to say that God is only love. <clears throat> People who think this way say, well, <clears throat> if God is love, then that's all God is. And so they reduce really all of God's attributes to, to one. We find that idea, of course, in things like liberal theology, which usually eliminates the holiness, the justice of God, the sovereignty of God, other uncomfortable attributes for the natural man, and ultimately does away with the whole idea of hell and punishment, eternal punishment. This idea that God is only love is behind phrases that you hear Common people say, well, I, I can't really believe the Bible is true because I can't believe God would send anybody to hell because, you know, God is love. God loves everyone unconditionally. This is the idea behind really all the various forms of universalism, universal salvation. But they're all contrary to Scripture. You see, Scripture teaches us that an important relationship exists between all the attributes of God. As we heard earlier this week, God is love, but he's also many other things. And we don't dare to make one thing of that list of attributes to be, well, this is God and nothing else is God. Those who consider love to be the main attribute of God, and the other attributes are either out of the picture altogether or secondary, you see, actually get involved in all kinds of practical errors. In fact, most, most practical errors in daily living come from a faulty view of the understanding of the attributes of God and their relationship to one another. So if you say God is primarily love and all the other attributes are a secondary or he's only love, you see, you end up minimizing his holiness and that will manifest itself in a lifestyle of licentiousness or self-indulgence. 
Just like if you, if you say God is only holiness, you'll probably end up in some form of, of legalism. Imbalance in the view of God will result in imbalanced lives. I love what the Puritans said. They said, you don't correct. It's like a tree, they said, standing. In, maybe it's been bent over by the wind. It's imbalance. You don't correct imbalance with imbalance because you'll end up with imbalance. You correct imbalance with balance, and gradually the imbalance will become balanced. And that's how we have to preach. Also, we don't overreact to error, but we just go straight forward and we teach the truth about God and about every other truth in the Bible in a biblically balanced way, bringing the whole counsel of God. And over a period of time, with the Spirit's blessing, that will promote a balanced view of that truth, a biblical balance that we are presenting to our people. So the truth of the Bible is that God is infinite in all that he is. Yes, he's infinite in love, but he's also infinite in holiness. It's impossible for one infinity to be infinitely greater than another infinity. God is infinite love and infinite holiness, infinite power, infinite wisdom, infinite in all that he is. So to say that God is only love is a tragic error that will lead us astray in all kinds of areas. The third error is a rather strange one. That is that God is not love. God is not love. Well, that notion, of course, is easy to disprove with, with a simple logic. If it's true to say God is love, it is not true to say God is not love. Very few people would explicitly deny that God is love, but some views and some people harbor that idea or something close to it. Actually, in Islam, Allah is sometimes said to be merciful, but not to be love. Did you know that? See, Allah has, doesn't have three persons in his Godhead to love from eternity past. And Islam affirms that Allah's mercy is strangely and largely devoid of love. Allah reserves his love and favor for those who deserve or win it, really, by their godly conduct. They follow the five pillars of Islam. You hope for the best. The Quran calls them winners and describes those who forfeit his love as losers. But they minimize his love because Allah is radically sovereign and therefore can damn you today, save you tomorrow, and damn you again on Saturday. He's capricious. And capriciousness is not love. So to say that God is not love would not only be to deny the foundational truth of 1 John 4 or all the scriptures, but is a serious error that ungods God. The Bible says God is love. He's not just love. He's not barely love. God is love, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable love. But what does that mean? 
Well, that's my second thought. Three thoughts about what God is love does mean. Number one, it means that God is love in his very essence. In his very essence. This comes from the operative verb in this simple sentence, God is love. It belongs to his very being. Now, there are other things that belong to his very being that the Bible speaks about in a similar way. John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit. A purely spiritual, uncreated, immortal, invisible spirit in his very being. He's essentially spirit. Or 1 John 1, verse 5, we read, God is light. And in, in him there is no darkness at all. And so, when we read that God is love, we may understand that he's talking about his own essence, what he is within himself, his internal nature, not just his external relations with his creation. And that you need to grasp. God is love, essentially, in himself, not just loving to others. Way back in eternity... Before anything existed, beside himself, God was love in his very being. So we're talking about his eternal essence, not what he becomes, not what he is in relation to other things here first and foremost. God is unchangeable in all that he is. Therefore, it would be legitimate to say God is love, God has always been love, God always shall be love. I am what I am, I was what I was, I shall be what I shall be. God is love in his very essence. Now, love is not some thing or some part of God. The love of God is simply God himself loving. God has no parts. All of God is love. It is God who is love. So when we say that God is love in his essence... We do, do not mean that God is love because he meets some higher standard of love. The same point I made with holiness. That there's a threshold of love somewhere and that God meets it and we're just a little bit below that. And therefore God is love. No, no. This runs parallel to other biblical concepts about God. Not just holiness, but also, for example, God is truth. He's not truth because he meets a higher standard of truth. He is the standard. It's the same thing with love. There are no other standards. God is the standard. So when God shows love, it comes from his very being, which is eternal and absolute. It comes from within him. So God doesn't derive love from anything or anybody else. God's love is self-generated from within himself. Think about illustration of sun and moon in the sky. The light that reflects from the moon comes from the sun, but the sun doesn't reflect light. Rather, it radiates light. God is light. He's like that sun. He's love. He doesn't reflect it from some other source. It comes from his being. Because God is love. 
Now, what does that mean practically? Well, it means for us, if God is infinite in his love to us in Jesus Christ, that means we can never exhaust it. There's more than enough to go around for us in our deepest valleys and certainly for all eternity. I love what Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon to people who were thinking that God couldn't possibly love them. He said, we we can no more exhaust the infinite love of God than little fish can drink up the oceans. And then he said, you are to drink like a little thirsty fish in the ocean of God's love. Drink on, little fish. You will never drink the oceans dry. That's why the Puritans used to say, yes, we must look at ourselves and our unworthiness, but for every look you take to yourself, make sure you take ten to Christ. Ten to the love of God in Christ. My dear friend, we need the love of God, and we need never fear that God will have to ration out his love gingerly. Or make us wait in line because there's only so much to go around. No, he lavishes his love on you as a repentant believer. And says, drink all you want because there's more in my infinity than you will ever exhaust. Because I am love in my very essence. I am infinite in my very love. So when our text says God is love... That means he's absolutely pure love without even one micron of impurity. For the God who is love is also the God who is perfectly holy. There's no wrong motives in God's love. No wrong desires. No wrong thoughts are to be found in his infinite love. God's love is unlike our best love. Your love on your most sanctified day will still be mixed with indwelling sin. And that indwelling sin will permeate the best of us in our best thoughts, our best words, and our best actions, for our very best righteousnesses are like filthy, stenching rags in the sight of God, Isaiah 64. Only when we get to heaven will we be totally pure. But God is always pure. He's always pure love. And so we we need to get down on our hands and knees and fall on our faces and say, Oh Lord, thou art pure love. And I surrender the totality of my being to that love. And that love passes all understanding. Paul speaks about that, doesn't he? In his prayer to the Ephesians. We don't know the height of it, the depth of it, the breadth of it. It passes all our understanding. And that's the beauty, that's the beauty of the love of God to us in Jesus Christ. The best human relationships, though they can be full of love, are flawed. Someday, in some way, those you love will hurt you to some degree, or say something to you that will disturb you, or wound you, or some friend may stop loving you. But this never happens with God. Never happens with God. There's no, there's no taints, tainted motives to the love of God. He's absolutely pure, absolutely steady, absolutely infinite in his love because he's essentially love. So why does he love someone like you? Why did he look around for the best he could find, his only begotten son, out of pure love, give him 
for the worst he could find. Sinners like you and me. And why doesn't God get tired of our love? Why doesn't he, why doesn't he, our poor love, why doesn't he just get rid of us? Why doesn't he break covenant with us? Because he is love. Well, why did he love you? Well, because he is love. (laughs) And because he loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving, cords of loving kindness have I drawn you. You see, there's no fountainhead for the grace you receive from the love of God beyond the love of God. It's just pure love flowing from a pure God of pure love. Powerful love. Magnetic love. The, 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 the love of God is like a magnetism. God is absolutely, totally lovable as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit. He's the chief among 10,000 in Jesus Christ. He's altogether lovely. You know that whole list of things in the Song of Solomon that seems so intimate about how lovely the bridegroom is. And finally, you know, talks about his neck and his, his legs as pillars of marble. Robert Murray McShane, by the way, has a whole sermon on that. The legs are as pillars of marble. What a, what a lovely thing that is about him. He's strong in his love, you see. And you could, you could go through that whole list and find all kinds of attributes of his love. But, but the point of it is, it, it has its crescendo, its climax at the end. Yea, he is altogether lovely. That's it. And you see, that's what draws us like a magnet. There's nothing else that loves like the God who is love. Perfect, beautiful, steady, powerful, infinite love. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that loving God is essential, I say that with reverence, essential to the Trinity. Essential to the Trinity. What was was before the world began? Eternity. And back in eternity, there was, of course, no humans, no earth, no animals, no angels, nothing except God. From all eternity, God from himself and within himself. And back then, God was love. But how could God be love? Since God is love in his essence, God in his highest degree of love loves himself. It loves each of the persons of the Trinity. That's the default, or that's the fault, rather, of of the God of Islam, you see. Allah is, is a sole figure, but God has three persons in one essence. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. But also, the Father loves the Father, and the Son loves the Son, and the Spirit loves the Spirit, because God is perfect. And it's not... Sinful self-love in God. God in his highest degree of love loves himself. There is no one else to love. If our highest duty is to love the Lord our God, and I say this reverently as well, it is God's highest duty to love God. And he does. The Puritans used to say that if our greatest privilege is to worship God, it's also part of God's eternal being to worship himself. God adores God because God is completely adorable. And we, 
in our minds, we have, we have problems with the idea that God loves himself because we say, wait a minute, isn't, isn't self-love wrong? And many people think nothing is wrong with self-love in us, but there is when we, by nature, love ourselves more than we love God. In a good marriage, for example, what happens in a really good marriage? Well, God is number one. We love God most of all. We love our spouse more than ourselves. And we're in third place. When we're in first place, we've got a bad marriage, a self-centered marriage that will destroy us. But you see, God is different. Self-love in us becomes selfishness and greed. In God, self-love is just glorious, beautiful love because God is perfect. Self-love in us results in a man-centered universe in which we forget that we are not God. But God is God, and there's nothing wrong with God loving himself. That's his ultimate prerogative, his right. All things belong to him. Now, by its very definition, of course, love requires an object. It, it is a transitive verb. You, you love something or, or someone. And you respond, don't you? Yes, but, but where is the object of God loving himself? Well, God is both the subject and the object. God loving himself. There's only one God, and this therefore tells us that there's something plural within God, the Trinity. And this is the glorious aspect of that relationship that the Father has. Take just example, the Father-Son relationship. You know, John tells us in the Gospel... And in 1 John, about a dozen times that the Father loves the Son. And they were together forever. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and so on. There in the beginning was God with God and loved God. So in God there is always a, a withness, a withness. God is never a solitary person. There's always togetherness in the Trinity. There's never loneliness or isolation with God. There's always love in God because from eternity, God the Father loved God the Son. And there is no compelling reason within God to ever create anything. It pleased him in his sovereign love to pour out the love within himself into this world so that those who believe in his Son might have everlasting life. But in God himself, you see, there is this witness, this loving relationship, this fellowship, this communion, this togetherness. And so when God creates mankind, when God creates family, when God creates marriage, these are all very faint reflections of God himself. We often think that God calls himself father because it's He's trying to relate to us, our world, and to fatherhood in this world. But it's actually the reverse. He creates fatherhood in this world to be faint reflections of, of himself as father. God, you see, made man in his image. Made him for community. Made us for fellowship. Made us for withness with him and with one another. For togetherness, for life in communion and community. And so... We must find our need fulfilled in our fellowship with God at, at the ultimate level. 
And from that vertical relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ, we then also experience, that's what John is saying all throughout chapter, 1 John 4, we then experience togetherness and witness with one another. I believe in the communion of saints because I believe in communion with God, the God of love who loved me first so that I might love him. This is life eternal, that we might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And so all these human relationships are reflection, faint reflection, of this glorious, glorious love of God in a way that goes beyond our comprehension. It's a glorious thing, you see, that when Jesus Christ becomes man, he becomes man in the image of God. He became man in the image of God's togetherness, in the image of God's withness. Oh, the marvelous Communion between the Father and the Son. The marvelous prayers he offered to his Father in John 17. Through the veil into the holiest place. Abba, Father. This was Jesus' life here on earth. He had fellowship with his Father whom he loved. And so John 3.35 says, The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. John 5.20, for the Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things that himself doeth. Matthew 3.17, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. You see, all of salvation, all of salvation is ultimately flowing out of this love of God that the Father has for his Son and gave his Son so that we might enter into something of that essential love and may taste something of the very love of God with which he loved his own son and something of that very love is poured out in us when we are true believers. Father, Jesus prayed, John 17, 25 or 26, I pray that the very love with which thou hast loved me may be in them. Yes, we don't have it in infinity like Jesus has it. We don't have it to, to that overflowing degree that Jesus has. But even here in this life, we may have something of this, something of this, that we are loved by the very same love that the Father loves the Son with. This is incomprehensible. A hell-worthy sinner entering into this intimate, glorious love of the God who is love that he has for his only altogether lovely Son. And so when the Father beheld the Son, from eternity past to eternity future, he takes delight in his Son. He looks at him. He sees the essence of who he is in all his beauty and goodness. And when he beholds the Son, he has a perfect smile from all eternity due to, due to the wonderful love the Father has for the Son. This is eternal love. God never took a break. God never had an intermission. In loving his son. God never had a mood uh, imbalance in loving his son. No. God never had to recoup his resources to love his son more. God always had perfect, infinite love for his son. And as Luther said, that is no, in nowhere more true than on the cross of Calvary. 
Even though Jesus felt forsaken in his human nature, the father was loving his son as perfectly as he ever loved his son. So the son, in response, loves the father as well. Jesus faithfully delivers the commandments of his father to his disciples that the world may know, John 14, 31 says, that I love the father. And that's true in his, in his, in his dual nature as both God and man. For Jesus had no sin in his human nature. He always loved his father in his human nature also. He kept the laws of God. He kept the great commandment. He loved the Lord his God above all and his neighbor as himself. The Son always loves the Father. As the Father eternally loved the Son, so the Son eternally received and returned that love unbroken, immediately, perfectly, without delay, without hindrance, without interruption. Infinite love is given to an infinite object and being returned perfectly for all eternity. And into that love, we are privileged To step into that love through Calvary, through what Christ has done for you. Perfect love. How can you not but say, we love him who first loved us. You see, God's love to God is never unrequited. It's never too late. It's always returned. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, the infinite essential love of God is, as it were, an infinite and eternal, mutual, holy energy between the Father and the Son, a pure, holy act whereby the deity becomes an infinite, un unchangeable act of love that proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Tis all a holy energy consisting in that infinite flame of pure love and holy delight that there is from all eternity between the Father and the Son, immensely loving and delighting and rejoicing in each other. Who said Calvinism was dry? This is love par excellence. This is good theology for the heart of a poor sinner who puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father loving the Son. The Son loving the Father. A self-perpetuating dynamo of holy love. And I come into that love by the Holy Spirit who also loves the Father and the Son perfectly from eternity. Romans 15.30 speaks of the love of the Spirit. No wonder Cornelius Ventil said when he was asked the question, what is the deepest thing you can possibly meditate on? Said, oh, it is the ontological eternal trinity. For you are on holy ground just to meditate on this love between the members of the trinity. And thirdly, when we say God is love, we mean that God therefore is love such that he cannot but display his love. Out of love to each other, the members of the Holy Trinity will, they chose to allow that love to overflow themselves so that it might be displayed outside of God himself. So the internal love of God now becomes externalized to his creation. It began back in eternity in the covenant of redemption, which has been called, of course, 
the covenant of love by certain theologians. God predestined all things and said, I will display my love in a variety of ways. God is the source of all true love. And so God loves his creation. Every good and gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He so loves that he gives, and he does it in so many different ways and at different levels. He loves the flowers of the field, we're told. He loves animals, we're told. He loves animals, no doubt, in a greater way than he does the dirt and the trees. But he loves, he has a higher sense of love for humanity. And then, of course, he has a love for the angels. But within humanity, it is his sovereign prerogative to show different kinds and degrees of love. Election is his sovereign choice. Without it, no one would ever be saved. We would all be consigned to hell. I had a young lady, or young lady, middle-aged lady, come to me a few, maybe five years ago now. And I hadn't seen her since she was a teenager. She was in our church when I was a teenager. And she said to me, uh, I want to thank you for something you said in youth group when I was like 16 years old. I go, I, I barely remembered who she was. And she's remembering something? Yeah, she said, we were in youth group. And, and I said, I just don't like the doctrine of reprobation and I can't understand it. I don't see how God could, could do that to anybody. And I apparently looked at her, according to her, and said to her, really? You've got a problem with that? I've got a problem with the opposite thing. How could God elect anyone? <laughs> We're all sinners. That's the wonder. You see, the Puritans used to say, election is the friend of sinners. That's not your obstacle. It's the friend of sinners. The only way you can be saved is through God graciously choosing you and drawing you to himself. God does the whole work. And he does it out of love, out of pure love. Now he has a certain kind of general common grace love for his whole creation. He loves his creature as creature, but he hates sin. And though he loves all people, therefore, with some kind of love, and I say that carefully. He loves some people with all love, with the totality of his love, his elect. And that's the people with whom he forges this special bond of which Jesus prayed, I've declared unto them thy name and will declare it that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. So the Father gives us to the Son as a gift of his love, and it goes back to the Father. That's to say, the love that is within God and is displayed within you and in his creation finds a focal point in the incarnation in the Lord Jesus Christ and on the cross and now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you every single moment. That's amazing. But that's what Hebrews 7.25 says, doesn't it? He ever lives to make intercession for you. Think about that. And that's both plural and singular in God. Because Jesus is both infinite and personal. And so what that means is, and the Puritans took it up this way as well, 
It means that there's a corporate intercession for all the elect church that Jesus exercises toward his father at his father's right hand. But being infinite, he can also intercede and does intercede for every single believer he ever lives to make intercession for you as if you were his only child with an incredible individuality, being infinite in his capacity. What a comfort that is for a believer once you realize that. And this, and this, this individual intercession... I can tell you honestly, this has helped me tremendously in my, own, in my own personal spiritual life, especially in times of deep trouble, times when I, 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 I could hardly pray anymore. I can only get out the word Lord or I'm overwhelmed with some affliction. And just to say, Lord, I've come to an end of my own prayers, but I know that thou art praying for me. And this is my strength. This is my hope that thy love and thy intercession will carry me forward. And that thou wilt bring good out of this evil. And that all things will work together for good to them that love God. You come to an end of your own prayers and you end in the prayers of Christ. You will experience a love from the intercession of Christ. It passes human understanding. I personally believe that the intercession of Christ is the most highly underrated doctrine in the Reformed faith in the Bible. I think we've largely missed it. The glory and the love of God coming to us through the perpetual second by second intercession of Christ. He's interceding for you now, 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 now. He's never absent from you. Heidelberg Catechism says it so beautifully. Says, but the question is, if he, if he ascended into heaven, is he no longer with us? And the answer is, he abides with us with his grace, his majesty, his Godhead, and his spirit. If he's abiding with us with all those things, we are safe, we are well, we are encased in the cocoon of his love. And no matter what happens to us, Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you want real love? Oh, come to Jesus. He's love in the flesh, perfect love beyond our wildest imaginations. He's better than we could ever dream. He's God's love manifest in the flesh, offered in the gospel. Some of you, no doubt, are still looking for love in the wrong places. Come to the love of God. And out of that love, you will find true love in this world. Let me close with three, three quick applications. What should this all mean to us now? What should mean we should be worshipers. Worshipers of the God of love. Worship is the act of acknowledging the worth of God and declaring what God means to us. True love means to cherish, cherish the object loved. To cherish and to value it greatly. That's what God does when he loves. 
That's what God does when he loves you. He values you greatly. He sings over you, Zephaniah says. Imagine God breaking into singing over you, you, with the kind of thoughts you have and the kind of words you speak and the kind of actions you, you take. God would sing over you and me because he loves us so much. That's what Zephaniah says. That's what the Bible says. He sings over you with rejoicing because he loves you with an eternal love. And you see, when that is true, then we go back and worship God with an overwhelming sense of awe. Worshiping the comprehensible, incomprehensible God in his amazing love. Cherishing him, valuing him greatly, pondering him in all his glory, his beauty, his love, with rejoicing and with singing. And number two, the fact that God is love should just move us to love God. When we know how wonderful God is, what a loving God he is, that should just move us to love him in return. Jonathan Edwards said, if holiness in God consists chiefly in love to himself, holiness in the creature must chiefly consist in love to him. When we seek for true holiness without love, that is not holiness. Genuine holiness is bathed in the effectual love of God. And when coupled with worship, it becomes a loving worship, a worshipful love, what the old theologians called adoration. We just adore our God. And then we enjoy a holy, reverent, loving intimacy with God. Our Father, who art in heaven, both transcendence and imminence, both exalting love and tender fatherly love that makes us cry out, we love him because he first loved us. And then thirdly, finally, because God is love. And this is John's second major point in this whole chapter, which he repeats actually very often throughout the chapter. We should love one another. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We belong to the greatest family on earth. But we belong to the perfect family in heaven. Even now, we do belong in principle if we've been born again. But one day it'll be in perfection. And so we need to let that love, the horizontal love, the communion of saints, flow out of the love of God to us and our love to God so that we would find our fellow sinners not so difficult to love, even though they may be odd or eccentric or irritating at times. But we remember, we remember they are loved by God and therefore we are to love them. We are to love them. That love is to spill over. I don't know how it is in your church, but in our church sometimes God sends us people that, humanly speaking, are, are not easy to love. Their characters are such that you say, wow, this is a challenge. <laughs> but you see, 
God sometimes tests our love. My wife likes to say that. God is testing our love to see how long, how, how, how fervent, how steady we will, we will love these irritating people whose characters are not very lovable. But if God loves, God can love people of all kinds of characters. You see, we should take our cue from that and say, we will go on loving. We will go on loving. We ought to lay down our lives, John says in the previous chapter, for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so when you see every other Christian, a non-Christian as, as a mission field, but you see every Christian as your brother and your sister in Christ, you've got an amazing family to love here on earth. I was once preaching in, in Spurgeon's uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle, and there was a lady in the balcony, and I, was, I had to preach a sermon on, on, on um, love in heaven, and I was talking about the, uh, the glories of heaven. The, the, Jonathan Edwards, heaven a world of love, perfect love in heaven. And uh, all one family in heaven, I stress the, the, the family character of that love. And then I pointed out what I'm just saying to you right now, that even here on earth, the entire living church, the entire living church are brothers and sisters to one another. And this lady comes up to me afterwards, and she's, she's just weeping profusely. And she says, I'm an orphan. I've got no brothers and sisters. I was an only child. I have one uncle. And he's in Australia on the other side of the world. And he's an alcoholic. And I was just weeping in my apartment this past week that I have no family to love. And she said, suddenly my eyes were open this morning under your sermon that I actually have the largest family on earth. What a glorious thing. How we ought to love one another. And when we see Christ in each other, that is the most beautiful thing. How can you explain to a non-Christian what Christians have in one another? You know, you could, I can go to the other, other side of the world. I went to New Zealand one time. And uh, I just got to tell you this quick story before I close. There was an evangelist there. He picked me up at the airport. I was supposed to speak in his church. And I asked him, before we were even out of the airport, we were, we were still just in the, in the, getting in the car. And I said, so how were you converted? And he tells me, well, he said, I had such a hatred to God. I actually took a globe in my hand. He was, grew up in the Netherlands. I put my finger on one side of the globe, put my other f index finger on the other side of the globe, and turned it over, and it was New Zealand. So he said, I called, I, had, I knew one person in New Zealand, I knew he was an atheist. So what I wanted to do, you see, is I wanted to get as far away from God as possible. So I called that friend, my atheist friend, and I said, can I come to New Zealand, will you pick me up? I want to get away from God. The friend said, no problem. So he got all the way to New Zealand. His friend picked him up. Before they were out of that same airport, his friend said, oh, by the way, I haven't told you yet, but I've become a Christian. <laughs> you know, when he told me that, and that, that penetrated his conscience, and God became real to him for the first time in his life,
I had known that man for 10 minutes, and I, I, I felt so close to him. I felt like he was my brother, my brother. See, that's what the Christian faith does. But it's all because of the love of God that we can have this special love one for another. So be careful what you say about your brother and your sister. Be careful what you say about the church, the bride of Christ. Don't, don't criticize her lightly, glibly. You know, my, my, I had an older brother. He was 19. I was 16. And he got engaged already. I thought it was too early. And so I was complaining to him in the car. And he stopped the car. I was complaining about his, his, his fiance. And he stopped the car, turned off the engine. He poked me in the chest three times. He was bigger than I was. And he said, don't you ever, ever, ever criticize my bride-to-be again. I got the message. <laughs> but the point is this, you see. Later on, I was thinking, today, people criticize the church so easily. My brother didn't give his blood to get his wife. Jesus gave his blood to get his bride. I'm not saying you can never complain about the church or complain about your brother and sister in Christ. When there's sin, yes, you need to go, you need to correct, you need to lovingly correct. But we should never complain about the church dry-eyed. We should complain about the church like Jeremiah complained. Oh, for the slain of the daughter of my people, with the tears streaming down his face. Because we are to love the church. The church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. This, this, these are our brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, love one another, for God is love. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask thy benediction upon this message. We pray that that love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, which can never be separated from us if we are true believers, or we from it, totally, we pray that that love may fill our hearts even in these moments, and that we would go out and love thee all the more, and love our brothers and sisters in Christ all the more. Lord, we thank thee so much that thy word tells us and thy Holy Spirit confirms it in our hearts. God is love. May it transform our entire lives. In Jesus' name, amen.